How do we determine success? What does that look like? How do we define it? You see, I think our definition of success is based off of what we're trying to accomplish. Like what is our end goal? Now I'll give you an example. Let's say you have a team that returns all five starters and some key bench players. They competed for a state championship the year before. Maybe they even won the state championship the year before. Now, a conference championship would still be very important to that team, but that's not how they're going to define success. They have a higher standard for what they're trying to accomplish. Now, if you have another team that hasn't won a conference championship in a long time and they bring back a good core group of guys and they have the ability to compete for that, that would be maybe their definition of success. That would be a successful year for them. Now, it doesn't mean that team number one doesn't want to accomplish winning a conference championship, but ultimately they're going to have different definitions based off of their end goal. I spent last week down at Auburn University with a client, and in my conversations with the coaching staff and, and the head coach, Bruce Pearl, I found a common theme in the things that they were talking about. You know, One thing that Coach Pearl kept saying over and over again was, in order for us to be successful, we need to do this, right? And he would list different things that they needed to accomplish. He also would say, you know, we can't do X, Y, and Z if we're going to be successful. And so that would be looking to avoid things. So realistically, there are two driving factors when it comes to determining, you know, our definition of success. It's driven based on trying to accomplish something or trying to avoid something. So on the basketball floor, we have to ask ourselves basically two different questions. The first one is, what am I trying to get out of this? You know, what is the end goal? And the second question that I need to ask is, does our desired outcome match up with our definition of success? You see, after we determine what success looks like, what our definition is, we need to find a metric that we can help measure that success. You see, this is a tough one because generally as coaches, we want things to be pretty black and white. So let's say, for example, you want to measure if you're becoming a better shooter. So you take 100 shots the first time you make 50 and the next time you make 55, you're obviously you know getting better. If you're gonna you want to get better at ball handling, you can set a timer and see how many between the legs dribbles you can get in 30 seconds, and then try it again. And if your score goes up, you're improving. And so this becomes very difficult for coaches because we generally want things to be pretty black and white, pretty cut and dry. You see, here's our problem: is there are a ton of situations in the game that it's where it's almost impossible for us to have a clear cut measurement for success or a clear-cut metric for success. So for example, you have a player that struggles to kind of understand how to play the game and, and you want them to get better in your system, but how do we do that? Like, what does that look like and how do we grade that? You see, when we don't necessarily have a black and white metric or something that's just clear-cut, I think we have a tendency to, to create them. So let me explain a little bit. You know, I had to come up with my philosophy um, from a skill development standpoint after I transitioned from being a college coach for seven years into the full-time player development space. And that was in 2014. And I found it really interesting because I would work with players and some players were super skilled and looked great in workouts and some of them didn't. I remember having a conversation with a parent of a player that I was working with and their, their son was really talented. And they were frustrated because their son wasn't getting a lot of playing time. And when they were talking about the team and, and what was going on within that program, they referenced another kid that I work with who I thought wasn't necessarily very good. And that kid was actually leading them in scoring. So I was very confused because I had one player that looked really good in a skill workout and he wasn't getting 
many minutes on the floor. And then here was this other player that seemed to struggle through workouts. And yet this player seemed to be you know, leading them in scoring and was super effective. And so as I'm trying to sort through this, I find myself uh, in Atlanta in 2015. I had the opportunity to work out a guy named Damari Carroll. And Damari had just signed a four-year, $60 million contract with the Toronto Raptors. And I was really excited to work with him because it was a, it was a great opportunity, but I was excited to be able to see what high-level basketball looked like. I had worked with a handful of NBA players up to this point, but most of them had been you know post players and point guards. And Damari was a big six-foot-eight wing who generally um, had the responsibility of guarding players like LeBron James. And so I was really excited to work with Damari. I was very shocked to see that the workouts were brutal. Damari in no way, shape, or form would have appeared to be an NBA player, let alone somebody who just signed for $60 million. Just for reference, Instagram had just switched from only pictures to 15-second videos and in four days of workouts, I think we had about 15 seconds worth of good clips to show. Three or four of them were dunks and a couple catch-and-shoot threes. But in reality, the workouts were rough. It was mass chaos. It was, it was, he was constantly struggling. You see, my definition of success did not match up with the metric that I was using to measure it. Because I couldn't come up with a metric, all I cared about was being smooth and everything, having everything run properly. That became my metric. I thought that my version of success or my definition of success was based on trying to accomplish something, but in reality, all I was trying to do was avoid chaos. What chaos means is that I, I actually need to coach. I need to coach technique rather than just coaching the drill and focus on it being smooth. I had to find solutions to the problem that he was having. But yet I focused on being smooth because I couldn't find any other metric to use. You see, in our need to be organized, I think many of us view the game like we view flex. I go from point A to point B to point C. It's controlled. I know where every I know where everybody's going. But in reality, the game is mass chaos. It's me and nine other knuckleheads running around on the floor. Four of them are my teammates. Five of them are trying to stop us from doing what we're trying to accomplish. We we have very inefficient forms of communication like hand signals and code words. I mean, it's, it's mass chaos, but yet all I was trying to do with my training was remove the chaos. So I would actually argue that if we're trying to remove all of the chaos from our training, that we're not necessarily training for the game. This is where ultimately I had a huge shift in my mindset. I came up with my philosophy of, it's very simple, the best players are the best problem solvers. So the game presents problems. Let's say I have the basketball at the top of the key and there's a defender that's trying to stop me. That's a problem. How do I solve it? You think we could think of a thousand different ways to solve it, right? Play isolation, call for a ball screen, pass and, and screen away, pass in space. There's a lot of different ways that, that we can solve it. Let's say you're in transition, you're in a two-on-one, and you have an obvious advantage, but there's still a defender back that presents a problem. How do we solve it? The more I taught drills, the more I began to understand them, and, and with that came a quick trigger to fix mistakes before they even happened. You know, you run a drill enough times, you understand what the common mistakes are. And so as I was teaching something, I would say, this is what we're going to do. By the way, don't do this, right? What I was trying to do was avoid the chaos and avoid the mistakes. But I quickly realized that sometimes the best way to fix a mistake is actually by letting that mistake happen. You see, a spoken truth is temporary, but a discovered truth is permanent. 
Have you ever told somebody to do something over and over again and they don't do it? And then finally they do it and it clicks. Oh yeah, that's what he was talking about, right? That's the discovery process. It starts with a spoken truth, but ultimately players need to be able to discover what works. Now let's think about the flip side. Have you ever told somebody to not do something? Like I was referencing, right? We're going to do this, this, and this. By the way, avoid this. You see, now our focus becomes trying to avoid something rather than trying to accomplish something. So I think that there are three types of decision making. You have good decisions, you have bad decisions, and then the third one, which is the worst category, is indecision. If you make a good decision, hey, that's great, let's do it again. You make a bad decision, let's talk through it, let's coach you up so that we can fix it. When you are indecisive, that is very difficult to coach. So let's say we're in a transition situation and we're working on it in a, in a specific drill and coach says, you know, don't turn the ball over. Okay, obviously we don't want to turn the ball over. But what's more important is we want to make a play. We want to go have success. We want to score the basketball. Our goal needs to be to score the basketball, not simply avoiding the turnover. So while avoiding the turnover is obviously correct, we don't want to turn the basketball over, we need to value the possession. We want our focus on making the right decision, not just avoiding the wrong decision. So when we focus on avoiding things, that leads to indecision. So let's say we're indecisive. We don't turn the ball over, but we don't do anything with the advantage that we have. So that's ultimately a bad decision. But when we're indecisive, the difference is it just brings us back to square one of the spoken truth. Right now, there's no example. There's no discovery piece because the discovery piece works on the mistakes as well and the bad decisions. Oh, I've discovered that this doesn't work. Let me try something different. When we are indecisive, that's challenging because we're just back to the spoken truth. We actually haven't made the mistake yet that we're trying to correct. So ultimately, I don't think that the end goal is to get players to do what we tell them as much as we want that to happen as coaches. I think ultimately the end goal is to get players to effectively solve problems. And we do that by allowing mistakes to happen, which is the discovery piece, which then leads to teachable moments. So how do we solve them? So I, I like to talk about this comparison a lot. You have Luka Doncic and LeBron James. So both average about 38 and 6 but they're completely different basketball players. See, LeBron is athletic, he's explosive, he can impose his will upon the defense, and Luka is more slow and methodical and, and vertically challenged in comparison to LeBron. It doesn't mean that Luka's a bad basketball player, he's one of the best basketball players in the world. But it would be really silly of me to expect Luka to solve problems the same way that LeBron does. He's physically disqualified from doing some of the things that LeBron does. And at the same time, I wouldn't expect LeBron James to have to solve problems the same way that Luka does because he doesn't have to. That wouldn't be playing to his strengths. You see, if both players were taught to solve problems the same way, let's say they were taught to solve problems LeBron's way, LeBron would still be one of the greatest players to ever play the game. And we probably would never have heard of Luka Doncic because he wouldn't be very good. Now, if both players were taught to solve problems the way that Luka does, obviously Luka would be as good as he is right now. And I think LeBron would be a good basketball player, but I don't think he would be nearly as good as he is because he obviously wouldn't be playing to his strengths. So how does this tie into youth basketball? You see, I think that we end up implementing universal concepts for the sake of organization and simplicity. 
And I understand that. We're doing a team drill. We have team practices. We're going to work on a lot of the same things. But in reality, your five foot ten point guard can't finish the same way that a six foot five wing could finish. Right? Obviously, I know that those aren't necessarily the heights that you're going to see at the youth basketball level, but you understand the point. A five foot ten player is physically disqualified from doing some of the things that a long athletic wing is capable of doing. So we have to find ways to solve problems differently. In 2021, I got the opportunity to start working with Megan Gustafson. So Megan was the 2019 National Player of the Year at the University of Iowa. She's top 15 all-time in scoring in women's college basketball. So Megan got drafted into the WNBA, and she quickly got released. And so we began working together, and so now I'm tasked with answering the question, why did you get cut? It became very clear that Megan was an incredibly hard worker, and I had two thoughts back to back. Number one, you're an incredibly hard worker. This is what has allowed you to accomplish all of the great things that you've accomplished to this point in your career. Like, it's awesome. And number two, you're an incredibly hard worker, and it's why you got cut. So I know that that doesn't seem to make a whole lot of, ex- a whole lot of sense, so let me explain. You see, at the college level, Megan was a dominant post player, and she simply outworked people. She's one of the hardest workers I've ever been around. She would sprint to the block, she would get great position, seal her defender, and then be able to score. And so she's left-handed, but she finishes really well with both hands. She will pivot you to death. And I think that there's a, at one point, there was a video online of her scoring 35 points on zero dribbles. Just incredibly efficient. And so she gets drafted into the WNBA, and she obviously has a a ton of respect for the women that are playing there in the level of basketball. And so her response is, I need to work harder. And so that's what she did. And so she'd sprint the floor, she'd get great position, and she'd turn and go to score. And now that's Brittany Griner at 6'9", or Liz Cambage at at 6'8", and Megan's only 6'3", 6'4". And she's now physically disqualified from having a ton of success, or at least consistent success, in those situations. But this was the challenging part. Megan's only method of problem solving was to work harder. So as she worked harder, she continued to experience failure. So her response, again, was to work harder. But we've already determined that she's physically disqualified from having consistent success in that situation. I use the comparison of me being on a track with Usain Bolt. He could be 60 years old, and it doesn't matter how hard I work, I'm not going to beat him. I am physically disqualified from beating Usain Bolt in a sprint. But you see, basketball is different than track. In track, I'm stuck. There's nothing I can do. But basketball is different. There's different ways to solve problems. So Megan was focused on, you know, improving her skill. She kept saying, I need to be more skilled. And and yeah, there were some things that we could do there, but it wasn't a skill issue. She was very skilled to begin with. It became a problem-solving issue. So that's what we started working on. How do we solve problems based on your strengths? Maybe in a ball screen situation, instead of rolling all the way to the rim, we want a short roll, catch it in space, and be able to use, utilize her quickness to go around people and give her more space to be crafty. You know, We wouldn't teach this to high school or, or youth players necessarily, um, unless they're a high-level high school player. But we said, Megan, you have a really good base, and with this size disadvantage, you're going to need to be able to, to fade away a little bit. Maybe bump the defender and fade or step away to get some space to clear your shooting hand. She became really good at that. And then ultimately, we talked about playing on the perimeter. I asked her how many threes she shot in college, and she laughed and said two. Both were at the end of a shot clock, and she didn't have a choice. And I said, Megan, I think you need to be able to add this to your game. I think you have good shooting mechanics. A year later, 
She shot 46.5% from three in the WNBA. There was one game that she hit two threes in the first half, and the announcer referred to her as one of the best shooters in the WNBA. It was awesome. And now I know a lot of coaches hear that and think, okay, here's another skill guy that that took a dominant post player and, and made them a stretch five that wants to float on the perimeter. But that was not the case because Megan then went to the Euro League, the second best league in the world, and she led them in scoring by about four points a game. And she didn't shoot very many threes because she didn't have to. Because in that league, there wasn't that much of a size disadvantage. And so she was able to go to the block and dominate. You see, she utilized her three-point shot to solve problems when it was necessary. Megan's had a ton of success over the last few years. And it's not necessarily because of her increased skill. It's just based off of her ability to now effectively solve problems. You see, that story, I think, is applicable for youth and high school players because I think we see it all the time. Players are dominant or incredibly successful at one level, and they take a step up to the next level, and the ways that they solve problems previously no longer work. You may have a youth basketball player that grows early and is bigger, faster, stronger than everyone they face, and then ultimately they get to an age where everybody catches up. So they no longer have the height advantage or they no longer are quicker than everybody else. And what ends up happening is either their lack of skill or their lack of problem solving gets exposed. As a basketball coach, I try my best to not speak in absolutes like this is right and this is wrong. It's more about what's effective and what's not. So I believe if I tell you not to do something, the next time down the floor, that will probably be the solution for you. So rather than talking about what's right and what's wrong, let's talk about what's effective. What's effective for the biggest player on the floor might not be effective for the smallest player on the floor or even somebody that's average size. And players need to understand that. So how do we work on making those decisions? How do we focus in on the decision-making process? You see, I think there's a couple different types of players. You have a skilled player, and you have a problem solver. I will always give up skill for problem solving. If you're a skilled basketball player and you can't solve problems, it's very difficult to get on the floor. If you are not very skilled, but you're a great problem solver, there's probably gonna be a role for you in some way, shape, or form. If you are a skilled problem solver, you're a stud, right? You're highly skilled, and then you also have the ability to solve problems. Those are the best types of basketball players. Now, when it comes to training and working on these things, we obviously, we need both. So a couple weeks ago, I was on a Zoom call with a shoe company that I work with, and uh, they had a world-class or professional surfer on there, and she was talking about her off-season training. And I found it really fascinating. So she spends a lot of time in Japan in the off-season, and she referenced the technology that they have uh, that allows her to get into a wave pool. So one of the things that she said was, In the ocean, no two waves are ever the same. They're always a little bit different. But in the wave pool, this pool has the ability to give her the same wave over and over and over again. So what it does is it allows her to build up her foundation, gain some confidence, and do the same trick over and over and over again with very limited variables. But ultimately, she has to get back in the ocean. After she has built up her confidence in the wave pool, it's obviously much easier for her to get back in the ocean among all the variables that the waves are going to throw at her. And as soon as I heard that, I thought, that is basketball training. Like, we have the wave pool, and then we have the ocean. The wave pool is going to be 1-on-0, 2-on-0. There's not a whole lot of variables. It's a controlled environment. We need that. 
We need players to build their confidence, to build their skill and have a solid foundation. But the game, like we referenced earlier, is mass chaos. It's the ocean. No two situations are ever going to be identical. There's a ton of variables that we need to, to play in. So we talked about removing the chaos from our training. No, the, the ocean is, is adding that chaos back in. It's simulating the game. Maybe we're playing in a, in a three-on-two situation with an advantage or you're even one-on-one, you're focused on making quick decisions. Right? That's our version of the ocean. So, so again, how do we work on this? You know, one of the concepts that we use is reverse engineering. Right? Let's show them where we're going and then try to get them to figure things out along the way. So ultimately they know what we're trying to get to, they know what the end goal is. And then let's try to see if we can if we can figure that out, which is gonna allow the discovery piece to happen.